Good morning. It is Kale and Company live right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Great to have you with us on this Wednesday. The show is presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. You can learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental Covers Me. Com. A reminder that uh, sometime this hour we will give away another pair of lift tickets to Ski Pat's Peak in Henniker. The number to call when uh, we uh, you know, give you the uh, cue to dial in is uh, 603-224-1450. 603-224-1450. But not now because we have a terrific guest uh, coming up. His name is Dr. Stephen Lesk, author of Footprints of Schizophrenia. And uh, Dr. Lesk, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you for talking. Well, it is uh, our pleasure. And Dr. Lesk has been a practicing board-certified psychiatrist for almost uh, four decades, uh, treating thousands of adult patients while uh, researching, writing articles, and mentoring students. And uh, Dr. Lesk, uh, how common is uh, schizophrenia in this country, and why is it uh, everybody's problem? Well, this is an illness that affects 1% of the population worldwide. I mean, these are massive numbers. There's hardly anyone uh, you can meet who hasn't been affected by it, either by having a relative who has it or knows someone who uh, has a relative or might be a caregiver for a schizophrenic. And uh, in this country alone, there's 3.5 million people who have it, but it, it remains under the radar. and No one talks about it. No one focuses on it. And I think uh, even in the uh, field of psychiatry, we have been somewhat remiss in uh, our ability to understand this illness, which is devastating and probably the most uh, life-changing of all the mental illnesses that there are. Well, your book suggests that schizophrenia has a, a connection to evolution. Uh, what What is that connection? Well, um, what we call hominins, or human-like animals, have been around for millions of years, about six, seven million. But language has only been around for about 50,000 years, which is a drop in the bucket evolutionarily. And language totally changed the way we use our minds, radically changed how we use our minds. And we're still in this adjustment phase of language. Like once we got language uh, by 10,000 BC, we wiped out every other species of the genus Homo, uh, and we just stand out across the globe. So it had a huge impact on our development, but not everyone is quite on board with it yet, and those people who are least on board with this modern way of using our mind, we call uh, mentally ill schizophrenia. How, how is uh, schizophrenia uh, treated? Well, we have lots of medications, uh, and they all do the same thing. They block a chemical uh, in the brain called dopamine, and the medications do work. Uh, we have to get the patient on the medication as quickly as possible, and to struggle to keep them on the medication because they 
don't really have insight for the fact that they're ill to those people. There, there are some people, uh, as I understand it, that uh, are unable to process uh, dopamine, while others uh, are, are fine with it. I guess it's probably the same as, as any drug. Well, right. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter in the brain. And what happens is that as we go through adolescence, we learn to suppress dopamine in certain tracts of the brain. There are four dopamine tracts. But what happens with schizophrenics is that around the age of 18 to 20, suddenly this reverses course and it desuppresses and this huge flood of dopamine uh, goes through their brain and uh, it changes uh, their thinking back to the type of thinking that children use, primitive people use, people who take psychedelics, or, or we all use when we're asleep. It's a more primitive way of thinking, and that obviously affects everything about them. In your book, you say uh, psychiatry is in the dark ages. Uh, explain that. Well, you know, if you go to a medical doctor, they uh, ask your symptoms, they examine you, they run some tests, and then uh, usually they'll say, well, this is what you've got, you've got diabetes, you've got high blood pressure, you've got high disease, here's how we're going to treat it. Uh, in psychiatry, it's very different. We don't have a single blood test that will tell us a diagnosis. We don't have an x-ray that will give us a diagnosis. It's very subjective. We have to rely on the information the patients and their families give us and the history that, that we see. So it's much more subjective. And you may go to three different psychiatrists and get three different diagnoses and three different treatment plans. I'm not saying that we don't help a lot of people because we do. And it's a fabulous profession, and I've been very lucky to be in it. But I don't think we're where we should be yet. And I'm hoping that this theory, which you call primitive organization theory, is going to be somewhat of a game changer and deepen our understanding of what mental illness is and schizophrenia in particular. How has uh, psychiatry changed uh, throughout the years? Since since you've been involved, you've been involved uh, nearly four decades. How, how has it changed? How has it evolved over the years? Well, um, in the 50s and 60s, it was very much influenced by psychoanalytic theory, Freudian theory, and those people uh, kind of led the departments of psychiatry. In the 80s, we call it the biological era of psychiatry. Um, you know, a lot of medications were developed. For example, in Thorazine, which is for schizophrenia, came out in 55. Uh, antidepressants were used in the 60s. And all these medications evolved to the point where psychiatrists have become largely medication managers and prescribers. So over the time that I've been in uh, psychiatry, I've seen the, uh, the predominance of the biochemical era, as it were, and uh, that has been the lead uh, in psychiatry. But we still have lots of remnants of other theories, psychoanalytic theories, uh, developmental theories. So uh, even though the biological era still predominates, 
Uh, it's not everything we hoped it would be, but we do help lots of people with medication, fortunately. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Lesky. is the author of Footprints of uh, Schizophrenia, and uh, glad to have him with us uh, this morning. And you say that uh, in your book that in, in 20,000 years from now, uh, there will be no mental illness as we, we currently define it. Uh, why is that? Well, this relates back to my theory that we're in a, an evolutionary moment, which is very new, and we're still adjusting to this new way of using our mind. It's not just our mind. We're also adjusting to a very new way of using our bodies. You know, our bodies are not used to sitting. Uh, you know, cavemen uh, use their bodies uh, 24 hours a day unless they're sleeping uh, to do everything. So we're in a very radically different moment evolutionarily, and not everyone is quite caught up with it yet. And those are the people we label mentally ill. I think um, by uh, 10,000, 20,000 years from now, we'll be through this uh, major uh, evolutionary change, and everyone will be on board. But, you know, I call the mentally ill evolution dispossessed. Uh, we're just not quite uh, as comfortable with these internal changes as everybody else. Our guest uh, is Dr. Stephen Lesk, and uh, the book is Foot, uh, Footprints of Schizophrenia. And Dr. Lesk, we have to take a break. Can you stay with us for a few more minutes? Absolutely. All right. Very good. And uh, we will uh, find out uh, in our next segment uh, what life is like today for uh, someone diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. And then a little bit later on in the show today, uh, we will be giving away uh, yet another pair of lift tickets to ski Pat's Peak in uh, beautiful Henniker. We'll give you the uh, the opportunity to call in just a little while at 603 224 1450. Kale & Company live right here, WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental with individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at deltadentalcoversme.com. We'll be right back with Dr. Stephen Lesk right here. Kale & Company live, WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL and htalkradio.com. Our guest is Dr. Uh, Dr. Stephen Lesk, author of Footprints of Schizophrenia. And Dr. Lesk has been a practicing board-certified psychiatrist for almost four decades now. And uh, we, we mentioned before the break, we'd like to find out what life is like today for someone that is uh, diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. Well, uh, these are average people who go through high school uh, pretty normally. And, uh, you know, strangely enough, 
around the age of 18 to 20, 25, maybe early in college, their thinking changes radically, and people notice that they're withdrawn, they may say odd things, they may act in unusual ways, they have very unusual beliefs. Um, and once the diagnosis is made, it's not that difficult to make it, um, the expectation functionally lowers. So most schizophrenics will not hold a high-level job. Many will not marry. Many schizophrenics live in uh, group homes where they get supported in terms of taking their medication, uh, having meals for them, taking them to appointments. So it's not expected that the schizophrenic will achieve the same goals that they had prior to the onset of their illness. Now, there are what we call high-functioning schizophrenics. Um, people who saw the movie A Beautiful Mind by John Nash, who won a Nobel Prize, Prize was clearly schizophrenic. Uh, Ellen Sachs, who wrote the book uh, The Center Cannot Hold, a very uh, iconic book, went to Oxford and Yale and was clearly schizophrenic, uh, treated, of course, with medication. So... We give medication, but the results are variable. Some people uh, take to them very well. Others do not. And the medication definitely helps, but it is not a cure. It, it ameliorates the symptoms by trying to block that reversal of dopamine suppression. And uh, results are variable. They have a lot of side effects. So unfortunately, uh, schizophrenia usually does not predict a good outcome in terms of functionality. Is it uh, genetic? Well, genes play a role. But my theory is that it cannot be a genetic illness. Uh, for the reason that Darwin states, he said that any gene or mutation that lowers your ability to function and lowers your reproductive rate, the schizophrenics reproduce at a much lower rate the average person has to go extinct. Now, that's the central paradox of schizophrenia. Why isn't it extinct? And the answer is that it's an evolutionary glitch, an evolutionary issue, not a genetic one. But genes can play a role if you have a strong family history of schizophrenia. For example, both parents are schizophrenic, or aunts or uncles. Your risk is higher. doesn't mean you'll be schizophrenic, but your risk is higher. Now, if you look at identical twins who have the exact same gene, one of which is schizophrenic, you would think if this was a genetic illness, 100% of the time, the other one would be schizophrenic. It's less than 50% of the time. We also know that uh, environmental influences and factors play a role in your risk. So, for example, if you're born in a winter month like December, your risk goes up slightly. If you live in an urban area as opposed to a rural, your risk goes up. If your father is, is older in the older age group, your risk goes up. But these things play a role in your risk, but they're not the cause of the illness, according to my theory. Uh, are there any uh, warning signs that uh, are detectable? Uh, yes, there are, and they're trying to uh, define what we call high-risk 
for schizophrenia patients, ultra-high risk, to see if we can identify them with such certainty that we could possibly medicate them before the onset of the illness. Well, I don't think we've gotten there yet. But, you know, schizophrenics might uh, say unusual things as children. They might hear voices as children. But, you know, even normal children will hear voices sometimes. Uh, they might have odd beliefs, appear to be eccentric, have difficulty kind of fitting into the uh, the average uh, person, you know, group. They seem like outsiders at times. But other times they seem basically normal uh, up until the outset of their own. But it's very difficult to say with certainty that such and such a person will become schizophrenic. But if you notice your child hearing voices or saying very odd things, uh, you don't want to take them to a psychologist or psychiatrist for assessment. But bear in mind that children think by different rules than adults, and that's normal. So in, in conclusion, what, what uh, advice would you have for, for someone uh, who has recently been diagnosed with schizophrenia and, and those who love them? Well, uh, number one is try to hang in there with them. You know, sometimes families become so frustrated that they stop communicating with their uh, loved one who has schizophrenia. But all the studies show that patients... Patients who do best have families that are involved. Try to get them to a psychiatrist as soon as possible because uh, there are studies that show that the longer the person waits before getting medicated, the worse the outcome. And encourage them to see the psychiatrist regularly and stay on the medication. You know, a schizophrenic doesn't see that they're thinking there's anything wrong with it. Everyone else does, but they don't. And if you give them a medication with a lot of side effects, they're just going to say, I don't need this. Uh, why do I have to put up this? And they'll often stop it. We have medicines now that are injectable and will last for a month, even two or six months. And that's a very good strategy to keep someone on the medication. So help them stay on the medication. Be the psychiatrist. Don't abandon them, even though they can be very challenging to deal with at times. These are not dangerous people. These are very passive people who are very interesting to talk to. And we need to bring them out of the shadows, into the spotlight. And I'm hoping my book and theory will do that. Well, uh, that uh, that would be a great thing. And uh, Dr. Stephen Lesk, uh, author of Footprints of uh, Schizophrenia, we appreciate your time. It's a very important topic. It affects uh, more people, I, I think, than we know. And uh, we, we appreciate you, you taking the time this morning to be with us. And Happy New Year to you. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. That is uh, Dr. Stephen Lesk, who has been in the field of psychiatry for almost uh, four decades. And uh, again, the book, uh, Footprints of Schizophrenia. We have another author coming up uh, after our next break. And uh, he has written an historic novel, an historical novel, uh, The General and Julia. And I'm going to keep you guessing as to what general, I mean, very famous general, one of the most famous generals ever.
But this is based on on the life of this particular general. And, uh, you know, there have been some modifications and uh, some of it uh, uh, in the imagination of uh, our, our guest, John Clinch. And he has written a, a number of books over the years. But this one is entitled The General and Julia. I will tell you, we are not talking about Julia Child or Julia Roberts. Neither one of those Julias is the Julia, uh, the subject of this book by John Clinch, who's be, he'll be coming up very shortly. Again, we will uh, be giving away, uh, after we chat with uh, uh, the author, John Clinch, uh, right after that, we'll be giving away a pair of uh, lift tickets once again today to Ski Pat's Peak on Us. And uh, we've had a number of winners between the last week and uh, yesterday, so we'll give away some more. In fact, we're going to give them away all week long here on uh, Kale & Company Live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. If uh, you're wondering, folks, they did it. The Detroit Pistons made basketball history Tuesday night. Uh, they lost at home to the Brooklyn Nets, 118 to 112, and it was their 27th consecutive loss, longest losing streak ever in the history of the NBA, which dates back to 1946-47. Pistons uh, will now go from the frying pan into the fire, as they say as they will take on the Celtics tomorrow night at the uh, TD Garden in Boston. Celtics have not lost at home this year, and uh, they have the best record in the league due to the Celtics at 23-6. and We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with our next guest, the author John Clinch. I believe he's in Vermont this morning, and he'll be talking about his newest effort, the General... And Julia, think about who that general might be. And we'll let you know right after the break, right here, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Great to have you with us on this Wednesday morning. We made it to Wednesday, and uh, we welcome our guest, I believe, uh, with us this morning from the Green Mountain State, our, our neighbors, uh, Vermont. Is that true, John Clinch? Yes, it's absolutely true, Ken, and I'm Happy to be here, and uh, as you know, the uh, old saying of Vermont and New Hampshire spooning since uh, whatever that year was, I forget. <laughs> yes, a long, long time. Uh, that, that spooning has been taking place. Uh, the new book that uh, Mr. Clinch has uh, written is The General and Julia. I've been having our uh, listeners guess uh, as to which general it was. I didn't tell them uh, before the break. Uh, but uh, And what have the results been like? Uh, well, been, uh, <laughs> the, oh, they've been overwhelming, but uh, most, of them, most of them think I think it's Dwight Eisenhower, but it's not him. It's, <laughs> no. it's you, it goes back a little farther than that. 
Or, for, or is it General Mills? And it's not Captain it's, Crunch. It's not General Mills either. No, it's not. No. Uh, it's General Ulysses S. Grant, folks, the 18th president of the United States who uh, left us in, in 1885 at the age of 63, was married to Julia Dent. That's not that's not a popular name in these parts, you know. I don't think I don't know if she's she's related to Bucky Dent or not, but uh, she was, however, an answer on Jeopardy last night. The come on, Jeopardy that I watched. Is, yeah, is that it right? Was about the, the category was maiden names yeah. of uh, former presidents, and uh, the answer was, or the 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 well, the thing on the screen was was Julia Dent, yeah. and the answer was Ulysses Grant. So there you go. People who had read my book. Would have made a fortune on Jeopardy last night. That that is so true, so true, and uh, that that is that is amazing. What a coincidence! I, I wish yeah. I had been watching. Was was that the uh, the Jeopardy that was on late last night? Or uh... Uh, was that was on? Yes, I can tell I'm an old man. I watched Jeopardy. Probably you too. Um, I think it was on. I had recorded. It might have been a couple nights. Oh, ago. okay. Because I know there was a yeah. celebrity Jeopardy on uh, last night, like a. Oh, that's the one where all the answers you know them if you're in fourth grade. Yeah, that's right. That yeah. they make them very yeah. easy for the celebrities. That's true. <laughs> very true, folks. If you if you thought they were a little easier, that is true for the celebrities. So uh, we're very pleased to have you with us, and you, you've written a, a number of books uh, in, in the past, and uh, the the reviews for this one are outstanding. So how did you decide to write uh, this book of historical fiction with uh, the main character being Ulysses S. Grant? You know, sometimes you read something or you hear something, you watch something on television, and you walk away from it with an idea that just won't go away. Um, and what happened for me, and oftentimes it's an idea that maybe the, maybe the people responsible for that first work that you looked at didn't consider their main point. Uh, in this case, I looked at, uh, or I read uh, Ron Chernow's biography of uh, Ulysses Grant, and, and I walked away after it for years more impressed by the very tail end of his life than by anything else. I mean, we know a lot about uh, him during the Civil War and him as a president. Um, what we don't know, or a lot of us, is the huge financial and medical and uh, family-related struggle that he went through in the last year of his life. It was a huge, to me, act of heroism that rivaled anything he did on a battlefield. But it was about family. And, uh, boy, that really stuck in my heart. And now almost a, a century and a half after his death, uh, how, how is this book relevant today? I, I know from, uh, from your book how he, he lost much of his money, uh, and uh, it had to do with uh, uh, one of his sons. So explain, how, how is this book uh, relevant today? Well, we can answer that two ways. One is relevant because... Um and well, this is kind of stepping away from that from that end. Um, relevant, especially because you know he was he was so pivotal in bringing the country back together at, during the Civil War. Um, and we live in a in a nation right now that's so divided. We haven't been as divided as we are now since the Civil War, I don't believe. And uh, he was an individual who, as a general, um, and as because of because of the human being he was. Um, was more interested in bringing 
America back together than he was interested in defeating the South. And I think that's an interesting difference. Yeah. Um, he really wanted us to be one country again. That was his goal. Um, and that was, and that's what, uh, what he operated on. So there's that, um, that idea that we, we need someone with that vision of unification. Um, I wish we had him, frankly. That would be nice. Um, yeah. On the other <laughs> hand, um, in terms of the end of his life, which is kind of what the whole book revolves around, uh, his story was, and again, people don't know it, um, and it's certainly not in keeping with what we think of as ex-presidents these days who uh, get to go uh, go on the speaking uh, on the speaking tour and and uh, publish books of uh, of sometimes their own making and sometimes of other people's making and uh, generally live high on the hog. Um, General Grant, Ulysses Grant, President Grant, um, lost everything about uh, ten years after he left the presidency as a result of his sons being in business with a with a con man with a guy who was running a ponzi scheme on wall street uh, this was 25 years before charles ponzi was born by the way <laughs> so uh, he was an early ponzi scheme inventor and uh, he took everything that uh, great grant invested everything he had in the company a lot of other people did too and one day in uh, i think it was a january of uh, 1884 Four or eighty-three, um, the uh, the stock market crashed because these fellows ran off with everything, leaving the Grant family, including Ulysses Grant and his son, uh, penniless. And Grant didn't have he did he didn't even have a, a government pension at the time. There was no wow. government wow. pension for the for an ex president, and he'd given up his uh, military pension when he resigned from being General Grant in order to be the president. So he had nothing. And he had nothing but his memories and his family. Oh, and, oh, and he also got throat cancer. So he, was, he had about a year to go. Um, and he wanted to leave something behind for his family. And what he ended up leaving behind after a year of torturous work was uh, his memoirs and... Uh, We'll, uh, we can get later on to how that to how that worked out for him. Exactly. And uh, how did he meet Julia Dent? They met when they were. Well, he was actually in the military. He had just gotten out of West Point. He was stationed in Missouri, which is where Julia lived with her parents on a uh, on a farm called White Haven. And it was a beautiful place, and it was a beautiful place for white people. Uh, not such a good place for black people because her father was a slaveholder and there were uh, you know 35 36 some 30 some slaves uh, operating this uh, plantation that he owned and she grew up with a with a girl who had almost the same name as she did her she went by they were both named Julia um, who was an enslaved child her parents were were there I believe and uh, the two Julias grew up together, almost the same age. So Julia Dent, lately, or later Julia Grant, um, had been raised in the context of, of, of slaves. And in fact, her, uh, her slave, Jewel, uh, was with her right until the end of the Civil War. So when they met, um, Julia was living in kind of a different environment from the one that 
Ulysses lived in. Ulysses was born in Ohio. His dad was a staunch abolitionist. And right then, at the very beginning, we begin to see some contrasts and conflicts between the ways they were raised and the way the country went. Uh, as time went on, Ulysses himself would run afoul very often of his father-in-law, who, of course, his father-in-law being a slaver, believed that his son-in-law, Ulysses Grant, was fighting on the wrong side. So uh, they they never really got along until, uh, actually, they probably never really got along. And at the end of the line, uh, old Dent died in a, in a bed in the White House um, under the care of a nurse. So I guess he benefited from it at the end anyhow. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. And uh, it, it, you, the book is, is excellent. It uh, evokes a, a lot of emotion, that, that, that is for sure. And uh, we'll, we'll get back and, and, and we'll uh, have to take a break right here, John. But uh, okay. uh, we'll be right back. John Clinch is our guest. The book, a great one, The General and Julia, a novel. Okay, so there you go, and it's uh, it's out there right now. It has been for a little while, and as I said, the reviews for this book have just been uh, very, very good, as most uh, reviews are for John Clinch books. We're happy. Well, there to you say. go. Yep, there you go, and he's coming to us uh, from the state of Vermont. This morning here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com, we are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Our guest is John Clinch prolific author how many books uh, to your credit now john uh there are four out there right now in kings of the earth marley about jacob marley and uh this new one the general in june outstanding and uh th- this book is is terrific and uh, obviously uh, lots of research uh, but in a in a piece of historical fiction uh, you've been quoting and saying that the research can be overrated a little bit. <laughs> Boy, you've done your homework there, Ken. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it certainly can be for me. Um, there's, there's not, there's, there's nothing new. Um, there's no new, fresh research here because it, because it is fiction. Um, and I think uh, E.L. Doctorow put it best when he said that uh, the historian can tell you what happened. Uh, the novelist can tell you how it felt. So that was so important to me that uh, that we get right to the to the core of what this guy we think we think of him as a as a general as a you know as a face on a fifty dollar bill. Yeah. Um, but we don't think of him as a husband, as a father. He had four children whom he adored, um, and he had three grandchildren whom he adored. Um, I mean, he was he was a family man uh, from the very beginning until the very end. We don't think about that, um, and those are things that you can really get at that, that fiction can really get at uh, because we we know what he did. Um, we know some correspondence between him and other people, but to get into to try to understand how he felt, especially during the the last year, and how people felt about him. His friends, for example, including Mark Twain, mm-hmm. um, you have to you have to imagine anymore. You know, you can't you can't 
You can't get inside people's heads from that. Um, so imagination really helps. And in my case, as you say, um, I'm, I've been known to, to say that for fiction, there can be such a thing as too much research. I tend to be like a like a, a golden retriever puppy dog. If I find or if I start digging into research and I find a bone, I bring it back and I want to show it to you. Um, and sometimes I don't need to show it to you. Sometimes you're better <laughs> off not looking at it. So uh, I need to stick to the knitting over here of writing uh, of writing fiction and uh, and let that golden retriever sort of uh, stay out of the picture. And uh, uh, Mark Twain, uh, friend of, of General Grant, and how, how did he have an impact uh, on your writing of this book? A number of ways. Um, from the very beginning, um, I've been a Twain fan forever and ever. And my first book was, in fact, about Huckleberry Finn's father that made me a lot of friends at the wow. Twain house down in Connecticut and so forth. Um, very serious book once again, although it's all imaginary. Um, but uh, Twain was important to me um, as an American writer, important to me as a stylist. Um, and and there's, certain, there's a kind of a Twainian quality to, to the writing in this book. It's definitely a book that kind of feels like a book from its time. Um, and uh, further, Twain, of course, wrote an autobiography, as did Grant. Uh, Twain's was ultimately three volumes long and all, and too too long for me to read entirely actually <laughs> but he did that he did talk about his relationship with general grant uh and his friendship and uh, we know certain things about their relationship to, from twain which is cool um twain himself then uh his particular involvement with 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 the grant family toward the end was that uh, grant had gotten himself sort of a he was getting into a raw publishing deal. He wanted to publish his memoirs in order to keep his family afloat after he was gone. And he'd gotten into a bad financial setup, uh, as was often the case with Grant. Um, Twain found out about it, uh, intervened, published the book himself. Um, it was the, the second book that Twain had ever published. The first was Huckleberry Finn. And uh, after, after Grant's death, by the way, he finished the, the memoirs, Three days before he died, go 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 take a load of that. Um, when the book finally came out a few months later, it became the single best-selling book in the world at its time, and uh, and it saved the lives and the financial well-being of uh, every member of Grant's family. So we have not only Grant but uh, Mark Twain to thank for that. No, no doubt. And uh, I understand that you are instrumental in uh, saving the uh, Mark Twain. House in uh, in Connecticut in in Hartford. It was close to foreclosure, and uh, you stepped in, and uh, it it still lives today. They the, yeah, they were in terrible shape. But this was maybe fifteen, sixteen years ago. It was shortly shortly after Finn, uh, the first book had come out, and I'd spoken there any number of times. That uh, they were very welcoming to me. That the whole Twain community was, um, for which I'm grateful, and. I got wind of the fact that they had uh, they had fallen on hard times. Actually, I read about it in the newspaper, the, mm -hmm. the, the Times, I think. And I, I contacted their uh, their director, and we kind of cooked up a plan where we thought we could get some attention uh, for the event for the for, for their for their their need. Um, and I set up an event with 
a dozen of my favorite writers. We all arrived. We all converged there one night. The goal was for us as a performance to read each one of us his favorite quotes from Mark Twain. Uh-huh. So uh, we read each of us read a little section, and uh, and the idea was that we promote the hell out of that thing and let people know all around the country that this was going on in order to save the house. And the results were fantastic. Even before we got started, about an hour before we got started, um, the director got a call from the Annenberg Foundation, which had heard about the peril the house was in, and uh, wrote them a a, a seven-figure check in order to get them back on their feet. Wow. So that was a huge moment, a huge, huge moment. And work I'm very proud of. It, it as it should be, no no doubt about that. And I know you also have a, a kinship with the uh, the Grant Cottage in uh, Wilton, New York. Uh, have you ever been there? I Nobody have not. Has. I have not. <laughs> Nobody has. I didn't even. I, I shouldn't say that. Um, but I had no idea that it existed. Uh, where Grant died was in a borrowed cottage um, in a place called Mount McGregor which is about, I would say, 40 minutes south of Saratoga Springs. It's in the, the, the mm-hmm. southern Adirondacks. Um, it was, he, he bought it from a friend in New York City. Grant lived in New York City at the time, and they wanted to get out of the city and get some fresh air, so they, uh, they took over this cottage, and it still stands. Uh, wow. It's called Grant Cottage. I, have a, I, I love to wear my Grant Cottage T-shirt. It says, uh, Grant Cottage established 1885 which is the year that he died there. Um, it's something. all there. The, his funeral flowers are still there. The clock on the mantle mm. that the, his son uh, stopped at the instant that he passed away is still there on the mantle. And uh, it's a, it's another piece of American sacred ground. It, it sure is. And the next time I go to Saratoga, I'm going to go to Wilton ne- next time. You should. So, yes, you I, should. I absolutely yeah. should. And uh, John Clinch... I wish we had more time. You're a terrific guest. Uh, His new book, The General and Julia. It's a novel, historical fiction. And, and John, thanks so much for joining us today and have a a very happy new year. You too, Ken. It's been a delight. Thanks for having me on board. All right. Hope to have you back again in the not-too-distant future. That would be terrific. That's John Clinch. And uh, right now, we have another pair of lift tickets to give away to Pat's Peak Ski Area in Henniker. We only have a short time here, so call right now. Andrew is standing by 603-224-1450. 603-224-1450, just like WKXL on the AM dial. And the first person to get through will be skiing free on us here at WKXL and the great folks at Pat's Peak. Uh, By the way, uh, yesterday, the annual Brian C. Stone Memorial Christmas Hockey Tournament got underway at the JFK Coliseum in uh, Manchester. Concord won nine to nothing. Their victory uh, yesterday over Goffstown. Concord will be uh, playing tonight at six against Hanover in the semifinals. Who do we have on the line? Hey, does Leo. Liam! Liam, where are you from, Liam? Leo! Oh, Leo! I'm sorry, Leo! I love that name. I think of Leo DeRocher, the former manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. That's a 
I have not heard that one. You haven't, huh? No, I need to. <laughs> he was. You you look it up. Leo DeRocher, one of the most controversial managers of all time in Major League Baseball. Where are you from, Leo? Living in Pembroke. In Pembroke. Well, Leo, congratulations. You're going to ski free on us here at WKXL and Pat's Peak Ski Area in Henniker. That sounds great. Uh, we needed some snow. That we do, but they make it. They make it at, at Pat's Peak. They've been doing it for years. The conditions, I understand, there are excellent right now. So check it out. We, we, we'll do, thanks to you. All right. Thanks, Leo. I'm glad you're listening to WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, and uh, we're glad that you are as well. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. If you missed any of this show or want to hear it again, we will replay it for you this evening at uh, a little after 7 o'clock. And don't forget, folks, uh, we'll be back tomorrow with more, with more Pat's Peak lift tickets. We still have them. Get them while they're hot and enjoy the great skiing that is going on right now, even as we speak. Night skiing now underway at uh, Pat's Peak as well. Thank you so much. Thanks to our guest today, John Clinch and Dr. Stephen Lesk. We appreciate their participation. But most of all, we love to have you joining us here on uh, WKXLNHTalkRadio.com. And folks... Always remember to look on the bright side of life.